Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast, where we'll be talking about some international tax developments. It's the start of a new year, looking ahead to 2024, and we've had quite a few different developments on the international tax front in Australia and globally towards the end of 23 and over the holiday break. So we thought it was an opportune time to get together and have a quick run through in terms of what's going on, latest status, and what you should be thinking about as you're thinking about the tax impacts for your multinational group. So without further ado, To introduce today's speakers, my name is Peter Oliver. I am the lead of KPMG Australia's International Tax Group. And with me today, I've got Ali Alam, our tax policy lead and fellow international tax partner with me. I've got Dennis Larkin, fellow international tax partner. And we've got Lydia Morris, who is an international tax manager in our group. So welcome, everybody. Really exciting to have you all here today with me and looking forward to the discussion. So we're going to talk uh, today about some intangibles developments, and boy, has there been a few. Uh, So we'll spend some time talking about that. Then we'll talk about Pillar 2 because it's now after 1 January 2024, so applicable to income years, both when we see legislation in Australia, but also other countries that have implemented it. Then from there, we're going to talk about a few other just things as to where they're up to, thing capitalization, transparency, treaties, and then a quick wrap up. So let's jump into intangibles. And let's start with the PepsiCo case. So this case, which came out towards the end of 2023, represents the first court decision involving the diverted profits tax. But more significantly, it's really a case about embedded royalties and demonstrates how active the ATO is in looking through legal arrangements and legal documents to understand exactly what's being done, what's being used and what's paid for in a cross-border arrangement to see whether a royalty exists. Dennis, why don't you take it away? Tell us what the case was about and what people should be thinking about. Thanks, Peter. And as you say, this is a case which covers some very topical issues in the international landscape at present. Firstly, the identification of royalty components in cross-border arrangements. And then secondly, the boundaries of the application of one of our newer multinational anti-avoidance rules in the Australian tax landscape, which is the Diverted Profits Tax, or DPT. So let's just take a look at what the Pepsi case was all about. And in summary, the case considered whether payments by an Australian entity to a foreign entity under an exclusive bottling contract could be said to have a royalty component, even if the arrangement does not actually mention a royalty. And that's important because if there was a royalty component, then the payment will be subject to Australian royalty withholding tax, whereas if there wasn't a royalty component, there may well have not been any withholding tax at all. As is often the case with international tax issues, the facts were quite complicated and involved a series of contractual arrangements. But in a very, very small nutshell, the critical facts were that there were two US PepsiCo companies which entered into exclusive bottling arrangements with an unrelated Australian entity, and that entity was Schweppes Australia PTY Limited. Schweppes would bottle certain PepsiCo-branded drinks for sale in Australia. And under the arrangements, PepsiCo agreed to sell, or cause one of its related parties to sell, concentrate to Schweppes in Australia, which would allow it to produce the drinks. And importantly, 
to enable Schweppes to actually manufacture and bottle and sell the finished products, they gave Schweppes the right to use necessary trademarks and other IP in Australia. However, the agreements themselves specified a price for Schweppes to pay for the concentrate, but did not expressly provide any payment for the use to use the trademarks or the IP. So what was the outcome of the case? Very critically, the judge in the case ruled that even though the documents didn't provide for any payment for IP or trademarks, a component of the payments nonetheless were actually royalties and they triggered a royalty withholding tax liability. The judge also found that if the payments hadn't had a royalty component, then the diverted profits tax would have applied to the arrangements as an alternative. And the relative scheme in that situation, if that had been the outcome, would have been entry into arrangements on terms where no royalty was paid for an actual use of IP. So what are the key takeaways from this case? I suppose the really important one, obviously, as we've, we've sort of touched on already, is that no matter how parties describe a payment in the contractual arrangements, that's not determinative of what the payment is actually for. Whether a royalty arises is going to depend very much on the substance of the arrangements and can arise even if there's no express license or if the contract expressly says the license is to be royalty free. And in this case, the judgment repeatedly went back to the concept of business and commercial context of the arrangement. So what's really happening and what's really being paid for? And I think in this regard, it's going to be imperative for parties when they do have these arrangements to be able to identify very clearly what the payment's made for, and if there really is an absence of use of IP or royalties, to be able to support that with very rigorous commercial evidence. It's also going to be necessary, if there is a royalty, to understand how to price it. And the pricing element itself in this case was interesting, given the positions advanced by experts from each side and the reasonably unique nature of the IP involved. The judge eventually selected a method which relied on an analysis of comparable license arrangements to perform a benchmarking exercise and to identify the appropriate royalty return. And then finally, in terms of DPT, whilst taxpayers would have been hoping for some more clarity on the nuances of the operation of the DPT from this case, given the finding in respect of royalty withholding tax, there was actually limited discussion of the, of the provisions in this final judgment. Nonetheless, though, it is clear the DPT is a real weapon in the ATO's arsenal, and it needs to be carefully considered by multinational groups when constructing their arrangements into Australia. And we expect to see more litigation on the DPT in the future. So looking ahead and to take away from this case, PepsiCo has indicated it will appeal, but it's clear the ATO has had a win for its approach to the determination of embedded royalties. And as such, we can expect the ATO scrutiny of embedded royalties to continue, whilst it will also naturally have been pleased to be confirmed in its approach to how the DPT can apply. And so multinational enterprises, and particularly those who are in IP-intensive industries, such as technology, healthcare, etc., will need to review their arrangements very carefully to determine if an embedded royalty arises from IP use in Australia. And that brings me to the final point here, which is it's worth noting there's no statutory time limit on the ATO reviewing and challenging withholding tax assessment, meaning that historical matters could be very relevant for a number of taxpayers. And once again, it's extremely important for them to go back and understand the very nature of what they're doing and once again, that commercial context and substance to the payments that are being made. Thank you, Dennis. And we'll move now to uh, think about this in a software context because the ATO in recent weeks has released the long-awaited uh, revised draft ruling for software. So TR2024D1, which is entitled Royalties, Character of Payments in Respect of Software and Intellectual Property Rights. 
Now, there's a long history here uh, because this is the update to a very old ruling, which was issued in 1993, very much a different era in relation to software, and so it is overdue. However, this is the latest iteration um, of the ATO's attempt to revise the ruling. They issued a draft in 2021, which was controversial and received quite a lot of pushback from industry around the boundaries of what is a simple distribution right and what might involve the use of IP rights that give rise to a royalty. So much so that consultation and messages back weren't just from industry, but um, US Treasury actually wrote to Australian Treasury during the consultation there to express strong concerns in relation to the potential for that ruling, stepping outside the boundaries of OECD commentary around simple distribution rights. And that was really interesting because that letter was in August 2022, and the tax office has gone away, and they've come back over a year later and put out a really detailed ruling here. And you can, when you look at it, you can see they spent a lot of time thinking about and building the technical analysis around the royalty definition and stepping through from there, particularly in relation to copyright law as to what acts give rise to a use of copyright or rights in relation to copyright that will give rise to a royalty. So the ATO has very much gone away and bolstered the technical support for their view, but maintained their view. And we'll talk about that in the context of the relevant OECD example in a moment. It's interesting because the draft ruling does comment on what the ATO has called a standard treaty. And they do say that that does not include the US or Mexico um, or Singapore, which has got some particular features. But then they don't actually include any other comments around the application of this draft ruling to the US being a major market in terms of inbound US multinationals in, in Australia. So, so that's interesting. But look, I think it's clear from what the tax office is saying, they're going to apply this approach. So be warned. Um, so if we think back, step back and say, well, what's in the ruling? Um, it significantly expands the type of payments the ATO considers could be subject to royalty withholding tax. The former draft that was issued in 2021 had eight examples. This has got two key scenarios. Both relate to the inbound distribution arrangements for the electronic distribution of software, so electronic download and cloud-based. The first is where an Australian distribution intermediary enters into an end-user license agreement or EULA with the Australian customer. And the second is where the foreign entity, so foreign parent, enters into the EULA with the Australian customer directly, but there's an Australian distribution entity that is involved in helping to facilitate that. And it's really interesting because the first guidance we've seen from the tax office on this type of arrangement, in both cases, the tax office has concluded that royalties exist due to the nature of what's being done by the Australian intermediary. And it's interesting here because whilst the focus is very much on the distribution of software, the concepts discussed and set out here in the ruling really do set set out the ATO's view um, that we think they'll start to apply and look at other types of sectors and multinationals that are using technology to sell into Australia, including things like apps where there might be an Australian distribution entity, but an app is held offshore and there are customers in Australia. And so this breadth here in the ruling, um, I think, really does set up the scene for the ATO to, to keep looking, following the theme of what is the substance of arrangement, what does the Australian entity do? The ATO goes into some length to talk around copyright and not just where there is a right to modify source code, access source code, 
but emphasizing things like communicating a work to a public, entering into some type of commercial rental agreement where an Australian customer accesses software as things that use copyright rights and therefore will give rise to a royalty. And so the tax office in really setting out that breadth of what might give rise to a royalty are looking to capture a broader range of um, structures. And then from there, they do acknowledge you need to look at the extent to which the payments offshore relate to a royalty. But it's really important from the ATO's approach to be able to define what acts and what things are giving rise to royalty and what are not, such as services. And so when you turn to what should groups do about this, it's quite clear, you know, when you think about the past, there was less variety in distribution models. Technology played less of a role, certainly back in 1993 around distribution of software. Now there's more flexibility and that means there's less certainty for groups in light of this ruling as to what might give rise to a royalty or not. So multinational groups really need to go and look at their um, look at their agreements, look at what's being done, look beyond the words royalty-free license because ATO has been clear that they won't just respect the words in an agreement to bifurcate and understand what's being done and how those different things might give rise to a royalty, whether it is copyright or whether it's other aspects of the royalty definition, such as using scientific, technical knowledge, know-how or ancillary services. So I think that's a really important thing that multinational groups need to think about now for software or other IP use into Australia. Undertake that definition activity. That might involve some legal advice as to whether copyright's being used. And then from there, you need to step back and think about value and apportionment and can you value those things differently so you're prepared and ready when the tax office comes along and might want to talk to you. One final thing I'd mentioned earlier, the tax office um, has specifically commented on the OECD commentary that US Treasury flagged in its letter to Australian Treasury and has sought to narrowly define that to scenarios where an Australian distributor has no ability to make a copy. And so software is just distributed in from offshore. And the tax office has distinguished that example from a cloud-based access to software. So they're very much looking to confine the application of that OECD commentary. They've taken on board the US uh, comments and they've held the line in their view. So I think that's all I wanted to say on the software ruling. There's a lot to digest and we'd be happy to talk to anybody out there that would like to discuss it further, but very much that same theme around looking at the substance of what's going on. So why don't we move on and why don't we then talk about intangibles more broadly and let's talk about the ATO's finalization of its practical compliance guideline, PCG 2024-1 on intangibles migration arrangements. Dennis. Let's go back to you. Thanks, Peter. Back to me, but still on intangibles. So as you've mentioned, the ATO in January this year has finalised its intangibles practical compliance guideline. Uh, And this is the third time we've sort of seen a release, this being the final one. There were two other drafts prepared uh, in 2021 and 2023. But so what does this intangibles PCG do? Well, it provides a risk assessment and risk framework to enable taxpayers to assess the likelihood of the ATO applying its compliance resources to some specific cross-border related party intangible arrangements. These are migrations of intangible assets. So basically you're reflecting any sort of restructure or change associated with the taxpayer's intangible assets that allows another entity to access, hold, use or benefit from those assets in some way. And also the mischaracterization and non-recognition of Australian activities that are connected with intangible assets and their development or their management or their enhancement. The finalisation then of the PCG really represents sort of the full the full nation and the full next status of the ATO's focus on cross-border dealings 
on intangible assets. So as we've heard already, there's court action going on. There's also um, determinations, as Peter's mentioned, and there have been taxpayer alerts in the past on the issue as well. Uh, and I think you know some of the important things we're seeing now coming out of this PCG from the earlier drafts are sort of bolstering the ATO's view around how we're actually going to have two different types of risk assessments for these different types of arrangements. In addition, they've provided further clarification of the arrangements in scope of the PCG, and they've included in this explicit exclusion of certain arrangements which are generally regarded as being lower risk or routine, and these are called excluded intangibles arrangements from the scope of the PCG. So so that is welcome, at least in somehow defining the boundaries of when the PCG will apply. In addition, they've included a white zone for arrangements that have been subject to previous ATO audit or reviews. But what's interesting here is that there's no reference in this white zone to the existence of advanced pricing agreements, or as they're known, APAs, um, which would enable taxpayers to qualify for the white zone. So that's probably a bit of an unexpected and and unwelcome surprise there, and it may well make that white zone reasonably unutilised by many people. In addition, it further explains the engagement the ATO, the taxpayers, I should say, can expect from the ATO based on the compliance risks associated with an arrangement and expands guidance allowing taxpayers to group intangible assets or arrangements, which should make it somewhat easier for taxpayers to apply the PCG. Now, as I mentioned before, there are these risk-based assessments that need to be made, uh, and that then leads to potential disclosures that may be required in a taxpayer's reportable tax schedule. As is becoming quite customary, the PCG, which we've seen this with many other international tax-related PCGs recently, includes points-based and colour-coded risk assessment frameworks for the two types of arrangements that are covered by the PCG. And just as a reminder there, the migrations of intangibles and mischaracterizations of arrangements. The PCG anticipates that taxpayers who lodge an ITPS may be required to disclose their risk ratings obtained under that risk assessment framework, which makes these taxpayers' assessed risk highly visible to the ATO. And again, we've seen this on a number of different occasions, such as the hybrid mismatch rules. Based on previous experience with other PCG risk-based rating processes and ATO investigations, it is really important that taxpayers think carefully about the factors that lead to their self-assessed risk rating, and they're able to strongly back up and support their self-assessed risk rating in the event of an ATO review, because this is one of those things where it does really sort of flag to the ATO all the sort of risks you might consider you have there, uh, and that will be sort of examined quite closely should the ATO review arrangements. So, Peter, I think that's the main takeaways I had from the the practical compliance guideline. As you say, it's really quite a large amount of uh, ATO coverage and court coverage on intangibles. So maybe briefly, you may move away to uh, something uh, something more tangible. Well, Dennis, I was just going to say before we do move on, I think the theme around that is very much evidence, evidence, evidence. So obviously, if you if if there's a migration of intangibles offshore or use of intangibles understanding the commercial reasons, why that makes sense, why that fits with where things are held in a global group, but then evidence, evidence, evidence of all of that. And and having that put together contemporaneously with a transaction in anticipation of the ATO coming along. We've seen this as the ATO is expanding in its car reviews, its questions. We've very much seen this around things like hybrid mismatch. Anything touching on international tax, think about pulling your evidence together. The ATO, you can expect, will ask for it. And they'll want to see beyond just written answers to questions. They'll want to see you know, what board minutes, what investment papers, what consideration was given and why it made commercial sense to migrate intangibles, how they're used, where DEMPI functions occur. So really think about that evidence piece 
is, is such an important thing that, um, you know, you might put a rating into your reportable tax position schedule. What do you got behind that when the tax office comes and asks? Because you can expect they will. So thank you, Dennis. That was, uh, that was good uh, to hear about that and, and have that in mind as well. Let's change gears. Let's talk about Pillar 2, Alia and Lydia. So it's gathering steam. And as I mentioned at the top of our podcast, we are now in or past 1 January 2024, which is from when income years in Australia are intended to be subject to our rules when legislated. And even though it has been legislated here, there's no indication of any change in the government's intent to enact the rules from this date. Uh, And we've also seen a number of other other countries that have now legislated the regime. So, Alia and Lydia, can you please give us a quick update on the global state of implementation and what issues multinationals should be thinking about? Sure. So, the OECD did provide an update on the economic impact assessment of Pillar 2 in early January. And I thought I'd just mention that because there are some interesting facts in there. They did estimate that by 2025, 90% of all in-scope M&Es will be subject to a global minimum tax. And they've revised some of the revenue forecasts down slightly. So it's now $155 billion to $192 billion per annum in US dollars, which is about sort of 65 to 8.1% of global CIT. And that they estimate that's largely from top-up tax, but it's also from a reduction in shifted profits. There isn't actually um, specific data on Australia within that report, but it does predict that high-income countries and developing countries will benefit, whereas the investment hubs will lose out. Thanks, Alia. So, Lydia, where are we up to with Pillar 2 implementation globally? Yes, so most EU countries substantially enacted legislation by 31 December 2023 um, in line with the EU directive transposition deadline. And also the UK, Liechtenstein, Norway and Switzerland in that part of the world also substantially enacted legislation. Interestingly, there were a few EU countries which actually missed the transposition deadline. So that was Cyprus, Greece, Poland, Portugal and Spain. Despite this, these countries are still required to apply the rules according to the EU directive timeline of a 2024 start date for the income inclusion rule and 2025 for the UTPR, although there is speculation that Poland might try for 2025 for all of its rules. Looking at the ASPAC region, Japan, Korea and Vietnam have all implemented the IIR effective from 2024, with Vietnam also bringing in a domestic minimum top-up tax from 2024 and Korea bringing in the UTPR from 2025. Malaysia has also enacted legislation covering the IIR and domestic minimum top-up tax effective from 2025. And a number of other countries in the region have announced a plan for implementation from 2025, including Hong Kong and Singapore. Thanks, Lydia. And, and as we see this unfold and countries implement, uh, it's also bringing greater certainty as uh, as there's better understanding then of when it will apply. I, I think many folks out there will know that uh, clarification there from Korea on the UTPR applying from 2025 was very welcome, as there were fears that they may have been looking to apply it from 2024, which uh, brought a whole host of concerns. So, Alia, What do groups need to be thinking about from an accounting disclosure perspective, given the new mandatory Pillar 2 disclosure requirements? Yeah, so a lot of those key dates that Lydia just went through um, do become quite important because the um, mandatory disclosure requirements in the accounting standards for Pillar 2 kick in when there has been substantive enactment 
of the Pillar 2 rules in a, in a location, and that includes where there's a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax. So say you're a, an Australian headquartered group with operations in Singapore and the UK, and you've got a 30 June year-end. So for your 31st December half-year accounts, which you're probably madly working on now, all that will be required is a short disclosure note in the accounts to say that you've applied the temporary exemption from the need to do deferred tax for Pillar 2. But once you get to the 30 June 2024 year-end accounts, then there may be more detailed disclosures required, including qualitative and quantitative information on the Pillar 2 exposure for the group. And so one uncertainty there is that we're not sure whether Australia will have enacted or substantially enacted their legislation by 30 June 2024. If it has, then you'll need to estimate the exposure for the entire group. If it hasn't, then the exposure for the jurisdictions that have substantially enacted a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, such as the UK in the example that we were referring to, becomes more important. So just keep in mind also when you're looking at substantive enactment, it doesn't matter whether the country's announced a 2024 start date or a 2025 start date, those pre-regime disclosures will be triggered upon that substantive enactment. So, So that's important for considerations for things like Malaysia with the 2025 start date and enacted legislation, and also even potentially Korea with their 2025 UTPR. So once the regime kicks in, in and that's already in, in place for a number of the 2024 countries, the current tax impacts of Pillar 2 will also need to be booked in the accounts. Okay. So, so what about foreign-owned Australian groups or companies? Yeah. So it's, it's a slightly different analysis there. So there shouldn't be any mandatory disclosures for Pillar 2 in the Australian IFRS accounts prior to substantive enactment of the rules in Australia, although some groups might choose to do optional disclosures and certainly auditors are encouraging that. But if the head office location has a 2024 start date for the income inclusion rule and has substantively enacted legislation, then the parent company might have to include Australia in their consolidated financial statement disclosures. And so there might be some local work needed to support that. Okay. And... and so there's a lot there to think about in terms of implementation and disclosures. So what about transactional activity? And what should multinationals be thinking about from an M&A perspective? Lydia? So from an, a, an M&A perspective, there are a few issues that groups should be aware of now. One key point is that for most intergroup asset transfers that take place after 13 November 2021, Um, the asset's historical accounting carrying value is used for pillar two rather than the transfer or fair market values. So it's important that um, data in relation to this is being tracked. Also, something to think about in the context of an acquisition. So the purchasing group will need to consider whether it falls within the scope of pillar two after the revenues of the purchasing group and the target are consolidated or if the target has a presence in a jurisdiction that's implemented a domestic minimum tax without a revenue threshold. It'll also be important to understand the work that's been performed to date by a target um, in respect of its pillar two readiness, which can be done as part of the due diligence process. And another thing is that pillar two tax impacts should be factored into any financial modelling that's performed. And questions remain as to how a top-up tax liability will be allocated between entities resident in a particular jurisdiction. And this is relevant in particular where there are minority shareholders in a high ETR entity that's subject to top-up tax because of a low ETR in another entity in the same jurisdiction. 
So in this case, the need for written agreements and contractual protection for minority investors should be considered as part of, of any deal process. Um, finally, questions also remain on the interaction between Pillar 2 and the Australian tax consolidation regime in relation to the step up in value of assets and liabilities of a target following acquisition. And we're hoping that this will be clarified in the domestic Pillar 2 legislation. Thanks, Lydia. So there's a bit to think about there from a transactional perspective. And, you know, I'm starting to see in terms of side letters for investments in the asset management space but also thinking about in terms of shareholders agreements, the type of things that need to go into those to have a clear understanding and agreement in terms of accounting consolidation, notification requirement to consult before there might be any future changes that could impact accounting consolidation and therefore the pillar two categorization of, of what's in a group or not. So I'm starting to see movement on that front in the M&A context and, uh, and it is something that groups should be thinking about. Just kind of turning back whilst we're still on Pillar 2, Alia, what should groups be doing now to prepare for Pillar 2 now we're in the um, the first year that the rules might apply? Yeah, you're right. It's We are now live. Um, certainly those with 31st December year ends, the regime's already kicked in and it's just around the corner for other year ends. So we are expecting to get draft legislation in Australia reasonably soon, but that shouldn't hold things up for modelling the impact because that can be done using the OECD rules and the, o- and the Treasury has already signalled that they intend to stick closely to those model rules. So groups really should be looking to classify their entities under the GLOBE rules, run their transitional safe harbour calculations and model their material or high-risk jurisdictions. And one key point I'd like to, to make is also that you shouldn't just assume that you will satisfy the transitional country-by-country country safe harbours for the, those first three, three years just because you've got a high headline tax rate. So things like unrecognised DTAs, CFC taxes and large prior year adjustments could cause you to fail. And also once it's failed, the transitional safe harbour can't be relied on in future years. Any project should also look at whether your country by country report is qualifying or not. So looking at things like what financial statements have been used, whether there are differences in your group's and also whether looking at the data quality that goes into your C by C report and the, and the methodology. We also um, recommend that groups do detailed pre-regime impact assessments, at least for those key jurisdictions where they have material operations and also those jurisdictions, of course, where they have failed the transitional safe harbour or they're pretty close to the line. And one of the key benefits for this exercise is, is not just understanding any potential cash tax risks, but also flushing out any technical issues that are relevant for your group or industry and whether they can be raised in the consultation processes and also whether there's any pre-regime actions and, and also very importantly, data gap assessment. So there's, there's going to be a huge compliance burden and a lot of data needed for these calculations. And so using that assessment to really start mapping out your technology roadmap. And with our new KBAT Global Pillar 2 technology tool that's being rolled out now, and it's really getting some terrific feedback there, it can really help streamline that data collection process and give you a good picture of what will be needed for your eventual compliance because it can fully do that full population of the, the Globe information return, which is an awful lot of information in there. It's a lot to get done in a short space of time, but there's more, isn't there? What else can we expect in 2024? Yes, <laughs> it just keeps coming. I did mention the draft legislation for Australia is expected to go out for consultation in the coming months. We are also expecting more OECD guidance to come. It could be as early as this month or possibly next. And also just 
keeping on people's radar, there is also the subject to tax rule, which applies a withholding tax to payments taxed at below 9%. And so the, the multilateral instrument to bring that in is expected later this year. We've spoken a lot about other intangible developments before, but just quickly, we've also got the proposed legislative amendments the government uh, put out there for new integrity rules to deny deductions for payments out of Australia by a significant global entity relating to intangible assets that are connected with low corporate tax jurisdictions. This was quite a controversial proposal with a few difficulties in the draft legislation. Where's this reform up to? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There has been very little on this since the exposure draft was released. So in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook last December, there was mention of this measure and it still had a 1st of July 2023 start date attached. In the prior federal budget, Treasury did release a Pillar 2 fact sheet, which did indicate interaction of the intangibles measure and Pillar 2 would be considered further. So it could be that the delay in the Pillar 2 legislation is in fact holding up the intangibles measure. But I think everyone's hoping that once it becomes apparent that Pillar 2 will solve a number of the integrity concerns the measure is aimed at, that it will be quietly dropped. But we'll have to wait and see. Okay. We will cross our fingers and go from there. Thank you, Alia. Let's just have a quick whip around on a few other things that are floating around out there. So we'll just spend a couple of minutes on them. Thin capitalisation. Dennis, the thin capitalisation changes have been through a number of rounds of consultation. Currently sitting with the Senate Economics Legislation Committee, when can we expect to see further legislative action? And do you think we're going to see much further movement on what's in the legislation? Good question, Peter. It needs a crystal ball, doesn't it? But um. We're expecting the Senate committee, um, which you mentioned there, to report back, hopefully with some sort of finalised comments from that particular process. And then we really need to look at sort of the Senate and House sitting schedule to see when we have time to actually have legislation prepared and introduced back into Parliament. So time is getting tighter again, given, like Ali said, for Pillar 2, um, these rules are also live. I mean, they, they apply to income tax years beginning on or after the 1st of July 2023. So Many taxpayers really have been grappling with these. In many cases, they've already had to do their half-year accounts potentially, you know, trying to think about what the impact might be for law that hasn't yet passed Parliament. So once again, we're hoping that legislation does come fairly swiftly uh, and also that really there aren't too many more changes because I think taxpayers are getting themselves prepared for what we've seen in the consultation documents so far and it would be hopeful that we don't have to have too many sort of changes, as I said, given people already planning well into this income year in which they're applicable really does feel like we've been through quite a lot of iterations and, and, and probably reached the point where, um, you know, from government policy perspective, there's not much further to give in response to consultation. So thanks, Dennis. That's a good little update there. Transparency. Alia, there's a couple of transparency-related changes floating around. What's the status on those? Yeah, so for public country by country, I don't think legis- draft legislation or updated draft will be too far off. I mean, I think like the intangible exposure draft, this was a quite a controversial measure. So it'll be interesting to see where they've got to in terms of balancing that transparency with the commercial sensitivities and, and compliance concerns that were raised. So I think we'll I think we'll have to wait and see on that one, but fingers crossed. And residency disclosures in the ThinCap bill? We should see them when that gets enacted? The residency disclosures are not seen as so so controversial. So I'm not really expecting any changes to come through there. But it is a bit of a sleeper issue that has been a bit overshadowed but by the excitement around the other integrity and transparency measures. And so I'm not sure how many directors realise that they'll need to be signing off on tax residency disclosures for all of their subsidiaries as true and correct. And so 
I think boards are going to expect some level of rigour around what work has been done to support this um, so they can feel comfortable signing that, and particularly in light of the ATO releasing further guidance. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. It is a bit of a sleeper issue um, and uh, it is something that boards will probably want to understand why they're needing to give it and, and get some comfort around giving um, you know, the disclosures there around tax residency. Okay, last point, Lydia, treaties. We've seen some movement on new treaties. What's occurred? Yeah, so as you say, Australia has been actively expanding and updating its international tax treaty network um, and the Treasury engaged in consultations on this expansion during 2021 and 2022. So the previous coalition government initiated plans in September 2021 to negotiate new treaties with Luxembourg and Iceland, which was followed by Greece, Portugal and Slovenia in 2022. Of those, successful agreements were made with Iceland in October 22 and Portugal in November 23. And then the current Labour government is further extending negotiations to include Brazil, Bulgaria, Colombia, Croatia, Cyprus, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Ukraine. And updates are also proposed for existing treaties with India, New Zealand, Korea and Sweden. Outside of this, there are still a number of jurisdictions that Australia doesn't currently have a treaty with, most notably Hong Kong. And there are some older treaties with the Netherlands, Canada, China, Ireland and Singapore, which were all originally agreed in the 1980s or earlier, and so may be in need of a refresh. Thanks, Lydia. Um, So encouraging and promising that we're seeing that expansion of our treaty network, but I think uh, it's a good point there. There's a number of major um, trading partners where we've got treaties with that are a little old, um, and Hong Kong's always been one that uh, we don't have a treaty with that's been a gap. Okay, so... Thank you, team. Let's move to a quick wrap-up. Um, being the start of a new year, um, it's good to have a wish list. So, um, with all these other things going on in the international tax world, there's nonetheless things that I know we've all got on our wish list we'd like to see reformed in the near future. Let's do a quick whip around with Dennis, Alia, and myself as to what each of us would like to see changed. Dennis? Thanks, Peter. Well, I think I'd move away from intangibles very much back to our controlled foreign company rules or CFC rules. These rules are older than the old intangibles uh, software ruling you mentioned at the start of the podcast, Peter. So they were brought in in 1991, haven't been modified very much since then. And as with software, the, the economy's moved on a long way since then. So a number of these particular elements of the CFC rules aren't really fit for purpose in a modern economy. In particular, some of the gateway and qualification criteria probably aren't terribly relevant and, and don't work very well for a number of fund investors in particular and some of the larger multinational investors. And some of the income types that are caught by the rules, again, probably are relics or, or show their age back from 1991 and, and don't fit in well with a modern digitised economy. So I think with a number of other integrity rules coming in, it, it feels like to me the CFC rules will be ripe for, for a revisit and refresh. Here, here, I agree with you there, Dennis. Alia? Yeah, so I mean, there's certainly plenty of commentary right now on broader tax reform, and so but perhaps maybe the best we can hope for at this stage is smaller-scale reform to boost investment. What I would like to see is Australia use the introduction of Pillar 2 to start to declutter some of its overlapping integrity rules And this is something that the OECD had recommended that countries do. And Germany has made some moves towards that, particularly to remove some of the overlap with its CFC rules. So, so Dennis, maybe you can get your your wish through that process. Can only try. 
That would be good. And then uh, just adding my two cents and my wish list, something I deal a lot with is foreign limited partnerships or limited liability companies in the US and our foreign hybrid limited partnership or foreign hybrid company rules that treat them as partnerships for Australian purposes. For a long time, we didn't have those rules many years ago. It was great when they came in. But look, it's fair to say that those rules are complicated. There are gaps in them with a number of areas of uncertainty. And that's given rise to, I think, a lot of time and energy that gets spent talking to the tax office when they do their car reviews. So I would love to see some simplification and reform of those rules. And I'd love to see that as part of a broader international tax reform. So let's keep those on our wish list. Let's hope we get some reform opportunities in the future. Thank you to everybody for listening to us today. We're really grateful for your time. We hope you found this interesting. And if you would like to talk to talk about any of the topics that we've discussed today in further detail, please do reach out to your normal KPMG contact or any of us here on the podcast. We'd love to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page at KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates.